0: Welcome to Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio. I'm your host, Jordan Davis. Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio discusses interesting and off-center legal topics and aims to make legal discussions more accessible to you. We strive to stimulate interest and provide information while always being entertaining. This week's show is on the internet regulation policies coming out of Ottawa. Before we start the show, we'd like to say that the views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, host, or the Queen's University Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student organization. This podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSC Queen's Law student volunteers. PBSC students are not lawyers, and they are not authorized to provide legal advice. The podcast contains general discussions of certain legal and related issues only. If you require legal advice, please consult with a lawyer. With the ever-increasing influence of web-based platforms on our daily lives, From social media to streaming services and beyond, federal internet regulation has huge implications for each member of the Canadian public. This issue has emerged to become one of the highest profile public policy debates, touching on fundamental concepts like freedom of expression, artistic freedom, cultural representation, economic growth, and even public health and safety. Last year, the Canadian federal government proposed a series of pieces of legislation concerning internet regulation that proved to be contentious and this became one of the biggest non-COVID political stories of the year. First, there was Bill C-10, which would amend the Canadian Broadcasting Act to bring it up to speed with the internet age. Web content would be subject to the same types of restrictions as traditional broadcast as regulated by the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC. Additionally, there was an online harms proposal that would regulate social media platforms and how they handle harmful content. These bills died when Parliament was dissolved before last September's federal election. But the government just last month released Bill C-11, a new version of Bill C-10. And they've also made it clear that they intend to move forward with their online harms policies. We are very fortunate to be joined by a fantastic guest to help us break down these issues. Dr. Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa. He holds the Canada Research Chair in internet and e-commerce law, and is a member of the Centre for Law, Technology, and Society. His column on technology law can be found in the Globe and Mail. He's the author of multiple copyright books, and he serves as an editor for several tech law publications. He also has a blog and a podcast called Law Bites, where he regularly analyzes technology law and intellectual property topics. He's a recipient of many awards, including the Kroger Award for Policy Leadership and the Public Knowledge IP3 Award in 2010, the Les Valley Award for Intellectual Freedom from the Ontario Library Association in 2009, the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Pioneer Award in 2008, Canary's Iowa Public Leadership Award for his contribution to the development of the Internet in Canada, and he was named one of Canada's top 40 under 40 in 2003. In 2010, Managing Intellectual Property named him one of the 50 most influential people on intellectual property in the world, and Canadian Lawyer named him one of the 25 most influential lawyers in Canada in 2011, 2012, and 2013. Dr. Geis was appointed to the Order of Ontario in 2018. Welcome, Dr. Geis. Thanks for joining us today to discuss these issues. So let's start with Bill C-11,
1: which brings online content under the umbrella of the Canadian Broadcasting Act and the CRTC. What is the the genesis of this bill, and what do you view are the primary objectives of these regulations?
2: Thanks. It's great. Thanks for having me, and that's a a good question. So, yeah, I mean, this legislation, I think dates back, really, in many ways, many years. We've had uh, lobby groups and others who have wanted uh, what they would characterize as an update to the Broadcasting Act, and I think it's reasonable to argue that the, the current Broadcasting Act you know, dates back now several decades, and so is certainly due for an update. I think the motivation behind that, though, is that uh, we've seen, of course, big changes in the way people access content online, whether that's audio or video, Um, much more things are basically on demand we choose to listen to what we want to listen to there's much more competition out there of course uh, with different kinds of streaming services podcasts like this one and others and so you know for a sector that's long accustomed to a regulatory framework that's provided them with uh, funding coming out of some of the participants they've sought to argue that many of these new kinds of services are part of the system i'm not convinced that that's really the case. They're not using spectrum in the same way that conventional broadcasters are, but you know that's the argument, the so-called level playing field. And as I say I think that there are there are real questions as to whether or not this is truly a level playing field issue. but nevertheless, that's sort of some of the genesis. The goal of the bill or the professed goal of the bill is to bring in these large streaming services into the Canadian system, the Netflix'es and Spotify's and Amazon Primes of the world. The response, though, or the practical reality of the bill and then the response to it, I think, with much criticism stems from the fact that while it's true that those services are part of the scope of the bill doesn't stop there it extends to a wide range of services around the world almost limitless jurisdiction uh, and also includes notwithstanding government's claims to the contrary the prospect of bringing in even things like user-generated content into the regulatory scope okay so staying on
1: that issue of user-generated content because i know that's been a very hot topic with this legislation uh, with Bill C-10, the government added an exception for that, and they took it away. And uh, I wonder if a few of our listeners might be wondering whether this new version of the Bill C-11, what, what that has to say about user-generated content specifically.
2: Yeah, so you're right. The The first bill, Bill C-10, created a pair of exclusions. The government's starting position was that user-generated content should not be included within a Broadcasting Act framework. And I think you know that instinct was right. The There's no other country in the world that has developed rules that would seek to create regulations that would apply to user-generated content in the same way that it applies, let's say, to a curated streaming services like a Netflix. Uh, And so initially they said, we're going to exclude both users from the ambit of regulation. We're gonna say that users are not the equivalent of a broadcaster, like a CTV, let's say. And so we're not going to bring them up before the CRTC. And their content is not a program that would be subject to potential CRTC regulation either. C10 became controversial when the government backtracked on one of those exceptions. And so it kept the exception around users not being treated as a broadcaster, but it removed the exception around their program. So suddenly their content was treated like a program and subject to potential regulation. Now, in the new bill, in Bill C11, the minister says, We heard the concerns and we fixed it. But I think anyone that takes a close look at the legislation, and you don't have to look that closely, we'll see that that's simply not the case. So they have reinserted the exception. There is now that exception is back again around programs, but they've created a new exception to the exception. Uh, And within that exception to the exception, it again opens the door to bringing in user-generated content within its regulations. I've noted that, you know, as we should this pass and it goes to the CRTC, it's possible that we will get exceptions to the exceptions to the exceptions to the exceptions. We'll get the exception in that the government has to exclude user generated content, an exception that puts it back in, an exception from the CRTC that creates a threshold that may exclude some content, but then an exception to that that will get other content that is still covered by it. And so what you get is a legislative pretzel in which individuals still find some of their content potentially subject to regulation.
1: So what is that sort of what would that kind of regulation mean to let's say the everyday Canadian, somebody who uh, you know streams Netflix or makes YouTube videos, uh, that sort of thing, like the average listener to our program, how might this sort of uh, legislation have have kind of an impact on their life directly?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I guess it depends a little bit on on the service that we're talking about. If if we're talking about a service like Netflix, um, you know, will remains to be seen precisely what the CRTC requires. I mean, the bill hasn't passed yet, of course, and uh, even if it does, it, it would then go through a series of hearings at the CRTC. So uh, it is a little bit of guesswork in terms of precisely what we end up with. But you know, if it plays out the way that uh, That certainly the sector that's been lobbying for this legislation hopes that it will. For one thing, these services will be paying, new funded, paying to help support the creation of Canadian content. And so the price of these services will go up for Canadian consumers as those costs will no doubt be passed along. There may be other services that are smaller in Canada. That decide that these regulatory costs just aren't worth it. And so Canadians may find that those services just aren't available. And if they are available, the price is very, very high because they the services will essentially try to make up the the smaller number of subscribers that they need to stay out of the threshold and out of some of the regulation by increasing the prices. So they'll make up the lost volume by higher. Prices, So then, therefore, exclude many Canadians, either by price or by simply blocking them. In terms of the actual experience on on a streaming service, presumably there will be some kind of requirements that, notwithstanding what Netflix's own algorithms tell it about what Canadians are interested in seeing or their individual subscribers are interested in viewing, they will be forced to put forward certain Canadian content as part of that screen as well. That content, in my view, and I think anyone who is a subscriber and tries it, isn't very hard to find. You just have to type Canada and you'll get the Canadian content that they have. But nevertheless, they'd be required to put that forward. That's on a curated service. On a non-curated service, let's say on a user-generated content service like a TikTok or a YouTube, I mean, honestly, I don't think anybody knows what this is going to look like. You know, I think the sector has its eyes fixated on the prospect of some revenue and that's their, their number one goal. But in terms of user experience, it's hard to know those services don't typically even identify who's Canadian and who isn't. We don't know who will qualify for some of that new funding. We certainly don't know who will qualify for being for the promotion around discoverability. We do know that it's likely to actually hurt many Canadian creators. And so Canadian creators that are say digital first creators may not even be identified as Canadian. And so their content won't be prioritized. They may effectively find them downgraded compared to others. But even if Canadian content is promoted, it's likely that content is actually going to be harmed on the global stage because the algorithmic choices that get made are a function not only of what gets put forward and what people click on, but also what people don't click on. Right. I mean, YouTube, like anybody else, makes judgment calls on a lot of different data points. And those data points includes both what we select, but also just as much what we don't select. And so I have concerns that by requiring Canadian content to be displayed to users that the services know Canadians are unlikely to want to click. It's there because they're required to do so under regulation. The algorithm will look at that and say, this is not great content. This is not content people are likely to click on. And so it'll be displayed in Canada, but around the world, it'll get less exposure because on the global stage, the YouTube algorithm says this just isn't great content when we've displayed it to people it doesn't get clicked on and so this will actually mean less exposure and less revenue for Canadians given that the global market of course is so much more important than just the smaller Canadian market.
1: So given that uh, like complicated global picture, you alluded to the fact that the sector does want this bill. Um, I was wondering if you could just point or talk a little bit about you know kind of the, the different groups that in support of this bill and maybe some of the groups that are against this bill and just to kind of get a, a larger understanding of, of, of where different interest groups sit on this bill and even the streaming services themselves, what uh, what they've had to say about this this bill.
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the biggest supporters are, you know, the large Canadian cultural lobby groups that have long lobbied for new sources of revenue. Their view of the, of the sector seems to be that that they can't survive or that the sector can only thrive if there's regulatory intervention that mandates certain payments in the creation of these funds. I think our experience to date suggests otherwise the reality is that there is record amounts of spending on let's say film and television production in Canada right now. Uh, Now the, the majority of that is what's known as foreign location service production. So it's using Canada to film, but it's not necessarily doesn't meet the certified Canadian content rules, but all of that's a little bit misleading partially because you know, what we certify as Canadian content isn't necessarily Canadian stories at all. In fact, where it's content that is based on a Canadian story, let's say based on a book by Margaret Atwood or Yann Martel or, or many others, it actually doesn't count as Canadian content. The fact that it was, a, it's a book written by Atwood is irrelevant for the purposes of certification. So, there are many canadian stories that don't count that way plus to be certified it's got to be owned by by a canadian so netflix can as they have produced content that is canadian in every way um, canadian actors canadian story canadian filming canadian production i mean you name it everything as part of it would is canadian except If Netflix owns it, it doesn't meet the certification purposes again either. And so you get those kinds of productions. You also, of course, get productions that do meet the certification purposes, let's say, perhaps because it's part of a co production deal. And yet the experience would suggest that in in many of those circumstances, there's almost nothing Canadian about it. it. It might be a Norwegian film, as in the case, let's say, of a film called Heaven, H E V N, which is in Norwegian. It has very little by way of actual uh, Canadian content, but because of a co-production agreement, uh, it's treated as Canadian. So those groups want this, although their arguments, I think, are easily challenged in terms of what it takes to create something that's Canadian. The platforms themselves are, I think, a bit resigned to the prospect that this regulation will take place and, and are probably looking ahead to The days when the CRTC, if it passes, will be asked to deal with it and sort of see how it goes then and perhaps challenge things in the courts. You know, I think you've got some of the larger players that basically take the position they'll do what they have to do. Some of the other players who've ignored the process altogether. And I think that's probably indicative of how they will treat this in the future. They'll just ignore Canada and either not comply or block Canada altogether because it's just a market that won't be worth uh, being a participant in. And then you've got many individual creators and users who are largely excluded from this process altogether. Um, was part of Bill C-10. The committee didn't hear from any digital first creators, didn't really hear from any consumer groups didn't hear, hear from any individual Canadians. So you can ask, well, what do they think about this bill? Uh, we know digital first creators are concerned, but we also know that the government hasn't spent the whole lot of time listening to them.
1: Before we move on from Bill C-11, are there any other, uh, you've touched on a lot here, but are there any other kind of, big picture criticisms or uh, concerns that you or others have about the bill that you'd like to touch on before you move on?
2: Yeah, well, we have managed to touch on a few. Uh, I, I guess I would add that um, uh, one of the other real problems here is the role, I think, of the CRTC. And I think there are a lot of people right now that have a lot of concerns with respect to the commission. Um, the chair has been, uh, is facing uh, literal acclaim, uh, both at the CRTC and, I believe, uh, now with an officer of parliament around uh, bar, around a meeting that was held with uh, a leading executive from Bell um, privately in a bar. And so there are real questions about how the CRTC has functioned, in addition to questions about whether or not the CRTC has anywhere near the expertise to deal with these kinds of issues. And I think there's a l- legit concern that You know, the government wants the kind of mission accomplished moment to be able to say, hey, we passed this bill and kind of wash their hands of it and hand this over to the CRTC. And I think that represents an enormous risk given the lack of confidence in the CRTC, public confidence in the CRTC, as well as its utter lack of experience in dealing with these issues.
1: And so now shifting gears to the proposal to fight online harms. Uh, The original proposal released by the government before the election was to get social media companies to regulate harmful content on their platforms. It faced a lot of backlash and recently in a report released by Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez last month, the government acknowledged a willingness to incorporate some of that feedback. How about I start by asking what this policy purports to do and then we can dive into some of the issues that many, including yourself, have had with these proposals.
2: Yes. Yeah, so this was, you know, I think initially the plan of the government was to bring this forward as a piece of legislation, but uh, they decided to hold back after the sort of the controversy over Bill C-10. I think the minister at the time, uh, Stephen Guibault, was, was I think, fairly viewed as a very poor communicator when it came to C-10 and the idea that he would be the lead on an even more controversial piece of legislation around online harms was seen as a politically risky approach. And so what the government did instead was launch a consultation over the summer in the midst of the election campaign. That consultation read a bit more like like a roadmap of what the government intended to do, um, because in fact, the initial plan was to bring it forward as legislation. So they kind of just took what was going to be legislation and just put essentially a question mark at the end saying, hey, what do you think, um, as part of that consultation process. the I guess fair to say that the response the government got took them by surprise. The response was very critical, far more critical than uh, they anticipated, to be sure. I mean, that's, I think, fairly clear. So it wasn't just people who, you know, civil liberties groups and other groups who might have been, they might have anticipated some criticism, but it was the very groups that this legis- this these proposals were designed to assist that were also critical of this uh, approach. And so government, I think, saw the writing on the wall that there was simply very little support at all for this and instead made the decision to pump the brakes a little bit. They released, as you just said, a what we heard report in which they were, I think, fairly candid that uh, what they heard was a lot of criticism and uh, are, are now, if not going back to the drawing board, have said they're going to strike a expert panel to review the the results to review the issue and come back with recommendations and uh, I wouldn't expect that we would see those recommendations likely until the summer or maybe early fall so that suggests that this is going to take uh, some time
1: so the original proposal listed a handful of types of content including terrorist content content that incites violence hate speech non-consensual sharing of intimate images and child sexual exploitation content what uh what did this proposal ask platforms to do in regards to, to this content exactly?
2: Yeah, so the, the government's approach was to zero in on content that they viewed as so-called illegal content. And um, in doing so, they they identified the areas that you just described as, as falling within this. Some of the earlier discussion actually uh broached the possibility of going far beyond that to content that was harmful or even hurtful content so-called uh, awful but lawful content um the government decided that that was become i believe the government decided that would be constitutionally vulnerable and so instead decided to stick with content that they've already got rules around that of course already begs the question if it's already illegal um do you need these additional sets of record of, of rules uh, but the kinds of things that they envision was the prospect of 24-hour takedowns, which raised for many real concerns around due process, the prospect of, of automated review and potentially reporting to law enforcement, which raised a lot of concerns. Uh, imagine you're someone who posts something that is perfectly legal, but in the context of an AI monitoring something, um, thinks that there's some issue with it, and suddenly now there's a report at the police about you Um, because this algorithm or this machine learning uh, software just didn't do a good job to identify the content itself and didn't have the necessary context. Uh, So those were some of the kinds of concerns, and then there was a whole bureaucratic uh, superstructure that was envisioned to get involved in some of the content moderation pieces and the like.
1: So you you touched on it uh, there, but... You know, when people hear about this sort of legislation, the first thing that comes to mind is like freedom of expression concerns. Uh, And we all know that in the context of social media, that platforms have often had a hard time, you know, drawing the line on what should be excluded and sticking to it. Because, you know, that can be quite difficult, especially if they're not given a lot of time to act. So do you think this proposal might go too far and lead to the regulation of content that should probably be left alone? And conversely, are there people saying that it should probably even go further?
2: Yeah, no, I think there were, actually, we didn't see a lot of people say it should go further. We saw primarily concerns about how far it was planning to go. Um, and so there were concerns around some of the issues that I just described. And I think, as I say, uh, rightly so, I think there were there were real concerns about due process, about oversight, about overreach, about the constitutionality of some of these proposals, and even about the effectiveness of some of these proposals. I mean, I think, ultimately, the view was that uh, that many of these things weren't Weren't going to be effective you know it seems to me that you know the government there are a lot of it seems to me that there are a lot of things the government could be doing that fall short of getting into the content moderation side of the story that is in some ways the most complex challenging area and they are better off it's not that they there's never a role for that, but that really should be the last thing that you deal with, not the first. So I think we could come up with data governance rules. We could come up with transparency requirements to better understand what these companies are doing. We could create new levels of accountability so that, as you suggest, in terms of how they, how they implement some of their policies, That there is greater consistency with that and that there's potential liability for failing to be consistent when they do that. So there are a lot of things I think that they could be doing, Uh, the government could be doing their competition related rules uh, is another area. So there's a lot of stuff that could happen. This kind of diving into the deep end with content moderation that is fraught with all sorts of other issues without dealing with some of the foundational related concerns in many ways runs the risk of dealing with the symptoms as opposed to the foundational problems itself.
0: Okay,
1: well, Dr. Geist, on behalf of myself and the listeners, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today for a discussion on internet regulation policy. It's been extremely informative to hear you on these issues, and you've given me a lot to think about. So I'll certainly keep my eye out as these stories continue to develop.
2: Well, that's good. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Today's show was produced by me, Jordan Davis. I'm your host, Jordan Davis. If you like this interview, you can find more on the Queen's Pro Bono Radio website. Before we end the show, we would like to say that the views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, hosts, or the Queen's University Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student organization. This podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSE Queen's Law student volunteers. PBSE students are not lawyers, and they are not authorized to provide legal advice. The podcast contains general discussions of certain legal and related issues only. If you require legal advice, please consult with a lawyer.